Welcome to our second season of Shooting the Breeze. This time, we're casting our net wider. We're going to be talking to inspiring athletes, amazing coaches, and behind-the-scenes trailblazers from across the women's basketball landscape. As we start the run-up to another WNBL season and the FIBA Women's World Cup being held right here in Sydney, this is a great time to be a fan of Australian women's basketball. Don't forget to subscribe and be the first to know when we have more Hoops goodness headed your way. And it wasn't looking at um, what is at the heart of why you follow sport and that's emotion. Because if you think about personally why you follow a team or an individual, the reasons why you follow them are driven by emotions, not logic. For more than 10 years, Georgie Maynard and True North Research have been on a mission to identify and share sponsorship outcome evidence. Their data shows how smart businesses can get better outcomes by backing women's sports and giving them the lift they so richly deserve. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Joining me and my co-host Jacinta Gavin today is Georgie Maynard from True North Research. Georgie, thanks for joining us. And you've been doing some really interesting research on the role gender plays in sponsorship within sport. Before we get into that, I'd like to just get an idea of who True North is and what you do and and how you've gotten involved in this space. Sure. And thanks, Paul, for having me on. So True North Research is a, is a market research firm, a full service market research firm. And we have been around since 2010. We work across a lot of in different industries. But for the last few years, we have been working a lot in the sports and sponsorship space. Uh, and partly that was because, you know, of a passion to do research into this space. And it's, it's interesting to go into an area that you kind of personally have an interest in. But it was also born out of the fact that when we spoke to rights holders and we spoke to sponsors and brands, we could tell they weren't being well serviced by the research and insights they were getting. Because at the time, a lot of the focus was on outcomes. It was on what's the TV audience size? How many times has the logo been flashed up? Um, What's the number of membership? And it wasn't looking at um, what is at the heart of why you follow sport, and that's emotion. Because if you think about personally why you follow a team or an individual, the reasons why you follow them are driven by emotions, not logic. So, for instance, if you're a Demons fan, you've had 57 years where they haven't won a premiership but you've stood by them through thick and thin. And finally, you know, the last weekend, you've got your reward. So we wanted to look at that emotional, put it at the heart of of the research and understand what drives that emotion. And is that emotional connection fickle or resilient? Are you going to have fans in the long term or have they just sort of, are they kind of fly in, fly out because you've had a good season and they've attracted new fans? So that's why we went into the space. We also kind of were speaking to sponsors and they were saying to us, it's really hard to compare apples with apples. We don't know where we should put our sponsorship dollar because, you know, a rights holder present this sort of rose tinted, beautiful view of a, of a rights holder and why this team is a great place to um, put your investment. But as obviously it was, research was being driven by them and the marketing agencies might be pushing them into one spot. And we wanted to really give them an independent view, a really transparent view, where we look at all these teams on uniform metrics and say, here's how these teams can be compared across apples and apples across a whole variety of metrics. And, and you know, for rights holders themselves, they were saying to us, smaller ones were saying to us, we know anecdotally, we know that there's a really good connection with our team. Uh, we know that when an, a sponsor does an activation in, in our with our audience it it goes really well but we haven't got the proof points around that we haven't got the empirical evidence so that was another motivator for going into this space and and trying to find a a product and that's exactly what benchmark does is it looks at this um puts all teams in the same in the same pool and gives a clear indication of what your unique selling point is as a rights holder okay it's really fascinating because you're obviously having to draw a whole lot of different data points in collate them put them into effectively one very large bucket and then start to draw out your conclusions in a way that's uh, understandable by different sports. And and fundamentally, because you are dealing with different sports, trying to average that out must provide some challenges. And I'm wondering how you attack that sort of thing. So 
I mean, it sounds like it would be challenging, but actually, it's it's. I mean, it is challenging from the fact that we've got a very large data set, and that is, you know, that's that's a, a big beast to manage, and the setup for it is challenging because for each team that we evaluate, we evaluate up to sixteen sponsors, and we have around four thousand respondents each wave of research. So we're collecting vast volumes of data, but when we cut the data, we're looking at how does this one team perform against these other 18 teams or 17 teams in its code? And how does that one team perform against other winter league teams on this one metric that say we're looking at trust or we're looking at leadership or something? So you can actually, once you've got it into your lovely you know, data set, you can actually drill down quite easily into how one team is specifically performing. And what I always think is really interesting is that whatever team that we look at, because there are so many metrics that we compare a team on, there is always something, however good or bad the team is, there's always something that makes it a compelling proposition that is unique about that team that says, okay, this is a reason why this partnership would work or could work if you kind of delve into this area and and go deep into it. Okay, so my follow-on to this is you've developed this research particularly around the role gender plays in sponsorship outcomes. What was the catalyst for that? And also, how's it been received in the wider sporting world? Well, the catalyst was really Chloe Dalton, who is um, uh, the Australian Rugby Sevens player and and the Carlton AFLW player. And she had contacted us and said to us, is there any data you can give us on on gender? And she knew that um, a lot of the research that we'd done so far that published had shown that women's teams had been performing really well on emotional connection. And we knew that we wanted to do this because we can cut our data by all sorts of different demographics and different um, teams, et cetera. And, and gender was something we wanted to look at in particular. Um, so Chloe, instead of saying to us, oh, you know, can you, can you, what data can you share with us was a great opportunity for us to delve into it and look deeper. So we did. And then after Chloe kind of shared her piece, we also put some research out on social media and we usually kind of release our data our big benchmark study twice a year when we look at all the teams and evaluate them on emotional connection and give a ranking and we usually kind of do that through the media but this time we just put it out on social media and didn't really sort of do a big launch of it but we were just like blown away by suddenly this has sort of gone international and we were getting people in the UK and New Zealand and Europe and Asia and the States and they were contacting us about it and then we we saw that and we asked someone oh, how did you find out about it and, oh I saw it was in Billie Jean King's Women's and um, Sports Foundation newsletter that week and I was like oh this is awesome you know so you know it actually um, went further than we thought and then we now put it on the website we don't have a form for you to fill in you just can access it we make it really broad access because this data is really important and there's such a focus or has been for so many years on on logo recognition and awareness and no one's looking at these other aspects and it's really important that people understand there is there's more to sponsorship performance than logo awareness it's actually what you do once you're aware of that logo what impact that awareness has on you and this research really kind of focuses on on those outcomes and what it really means okay now looking at the research on the surface, at the beginning, we there's the discussion of familiarity. We get into, yes, men's teams have a higher familiarity score than women's teams. But the moment you start getting into deeper levels of the data, you're really challenging those truisms of sport, which is men's sport is where it's at, and that's where you're going to get, you know, to distill it down, the biggest bang for your buck but your research actually tips that truism on its head because as I'm reading the data here, you're basically saying that while you get a higher visibility rating, you get a far greater engagement rating with women's sports. And so that's a pretty big change to what people typically believe. Yeah. I mean, I think we've been conditioned to think you know that 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 exposure is the king you know that it's all about exposure how many times we see see a team and understand a team and that is where it starts and ends but it it's not so yes exposure is going to give a team high familiarity and that's the most first thing that you've got to get in the chain you've got to be aware of a team and you know habit 
and history, the column inches written about men's teams, the promotion, the marketing budgets, etc., have all led to the fact that those teams will naturally have higher awareness right now than women's teams. Um, we know that that's, you know, women's teams are growing, but, you know, we've got that's definitely the first entry point is, yes, you're much more aware. Once you're aware of a team, then we look at it and go, okay, so of this pool over here, and the men's team's going to be a much bigger pool, but the women's team's going to be a smaller pool. Once you're aware of a team, how likely are you to be aware of the sponsor of the team? And here we see that on average, it's on par. So for a men's team, it's around 37%. For a women's team, it's 36% of people being aware of at least one sponsor of that team. Next stage is where it gets interesting, because here we then look at Okay, so now that you're aware of that sponsor, how likely are you to feel positive towards that sponsor, consider that sponsor, use the sponsor for the first time, use it more frequently, have greater trust in that sponsor, some form of positive reaction to it. And here we see women's teams really sort of step up. So you see that 54% of people familiar with a women's team are likely to have a positive reaction to it, whereas only 41% aware of a, of a male team sponsor are likely to have a positive reaction to that. And so that automatically shows you that, you know, over half women's sponsors are getting some kind of reaction to it. And then if you drill that down into consideration usage, we still see that same pattern that women's teams are performing better than men's teams in consideration and usage. What's important about that aspect is that there are a number of factors that are leading to that outcome why is it that women's teams have this this greater reaction than men's teams and it and it comes down to a number of factors emotional connection is one of them another factor is that the audiences that follow women's sports are also more primed to engage with sponsorship messaging so if you look at the audience profile of a women's sport they're more likely to have the audience demographics that are likely to engage with sponsor messaging So by that, I'm talking about younger audiences, families, and there's some other demographic audiences as well that do engage. So if you look at the WNBL, if you look at Super Netball, here are codes where you're seeing three in five, not even 54%, you're seeing higher than 60% of people engaging with sponsor messaging. So it gets even more significant in some women's codes. And I think that is where it becomes interesting. And then you can then at that point, overlayer the dollar amount that you're paying because at this stage men's teams have still entered the situation with a bigger bucket you know they've already started with a bigger pool but now um, once you get that emotional connection score and then you layer in the lower cost cost of the sponsorship and here you're seeing that there can be a greater return from sponsoring women's sport like when uh so just with the familiarity and exposure you've touched on when I was going through the uh, benchmark reports on the True North website, I found it, there was a bit of a triad between familiarity, exposure, and longevity. So my interpretation based on the um, data online and what you've just said, Georgie, is that hypothetically if we had a brand-new club that launched a men and women's team at the same time, ultimately you know, the sponsors of each team will have like well, not, well, yeah, equal revenue, I, I suppose, or exposure. And so the other factor for me then is longevity. And I think traditionally a lot of sports and a lot of clubs have had men's teams that have, or even leagues, um, you know, AFLW as an example, for a much longer. So it's like the, some men's sports have had a bit of a head start when it comes to placing, you know, themselves in the marketplace. Is there any way... Using familiarity and, and exposure, is there any way that, you know, women's leagues or, or clubs or teams can kind of bridge that gap and in a way of compensating for that longevity that they would have missed compared to women's, the men's team? Anyway, for women's team to compensate for the longevity, yeah? Yeah, yeah, like almost like a way of kind of catching up. So, yeah, if, if I'm playing brand-new AFLW team, and the AFL, I'm going to say AFL M team because that's a potentially something that might be changing. Yeah, so the AFL M team has been around for yeah 50 years. How am I going to catch up? They've got this long-standing club history, emotional connection, which mm-hmm. you've touched on already, which we'll um, dive into a bit more later. But I feel like it's like, how do I catch up? How do I get to that that same level yeah. status? Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing is, ultimately, you're not going to catch up 
in the short term. Um, it's going to take time. I mean, you can see this in sports where there has been more equality. If you look at uh, women's and men's tennis, where there has been equal pay. And, and through the periods, obviously, we've been through a period where men's players have a lot of focus, but there was the Chrissy Everett, Martina Navratilova era. So there is where you've got a little bit more parity. So those changes for AFL, AFLW, AFL and the AFLW are not going to have happen overnight. And women shouldn't really be competing in that space, really, because you don't need to. Because what we're saying is, you know, when you've got a really strong emotional connection, when you're looking at your proposition to a brand, at the moment, you know, your sponsorship costs that you're saying to the brand and saying, okay, you know, at the moment, they're not demanding the same value in the sponsorship revenue as their male counterparts. Um, but it does mean that at the moment, these women's sports propositions are, are really great value for money. Because what we do is we we look at that emotional connection piece and we look at the dollar cost per thousand positive reactions you're getting to the sponsorship. And if a sponsor is paying X amount for product A and, and X amount for product B, um, it's obviously got high awareness in A but and lower awareness in B, but the emotional connection component means that they're delivering a higher return a higher return ultimately in the dollar cost per thousand positive reactions so some teams will see they're paying under a thousand thousand dollars for a thousand positive reactions whereas another sponsor may be paying well over a thousand dollars to get a thousand positive reactions so really what we're trying to look at is okay what does it mean that's the kind of leveling of apples with apples and that's not to say there aren't, there's lots of men's teams that give really great outcomes that are definitely really cost-effective options because they've got that really high awareness and they may also have good outcomes, positive connections, emotionally connected audience, etc. You know, Melbourne Storm's got um, has and its grill partnership is a really good example of a partnership that is performing really strongly and and the dollar cost per thousand positive reactions is is very low and they they've had a great return on that in 2020. But a lot of women's teams are also in this space as well. And a lot of men's teams are in that higher, more expensive option. But people are still paying that large fee for a men's team because they think that awareness is where they're going to get the answer. But ultimately, awareness is just the first cog in the wheel. And if you, if someone's aware but then does nothing about it, then except if you're an insurance brand and you need to be top of mind, then you know you're not really getting the ultimate um, out of it, which is, are you considering me? Will you use me? Um, which is where you know a, a sponsor really wants to get to. And tell us more about the emotional connection you you mentioned before. That there's did you say five core values to emotional connection? So yeah, so we'll, more about that. So when we when we measure emotional connection, we put five values at the heart of emotional connection. So. They are respect, enjoyment, trust, pride, and bond. And so if you feel really um, emotionally connected to an audience, and women's teams generally have a strong emotional connection in the marketplace, so amongst all those familiar with the team, and, and men's teams will have it amongst their fans, they'll have a stronger connection amongst their fan audience. Um, of course, a sponsor wants to operate in both the fan audience and the market audience. But a women's team will have those strong often will have those strong emotional connection scores and even you know so when we're looking at those aspects if you feel positively connected to a team in that way then you're likely to transfer those positive emotions that you have towards a team to the sponsor of that team so a really good example of this is sunshine coast lightning they had the highest emotional connection score in our 2020 study and they had the second highest positive reaction scores to their sponsor. So whilst they're a team which has very low familiarity, they're a team that has really great positive outcomes for their sponsors. So for them, it's obviously about growing familiarity to achieve even greater returns for their sponsor. But they are performing once someone is aware of that team, they're actually delivering good outcomes. And another really good example that I should mention is, is just... I'm tapping into the reasons why someone emotionally connects to a team. So if you're a sponsor and you really know how to drive those five values of respect, enjoyment, trust, pride and bond, 
you understand what drives that for a team or, or a follower group, then you can really um, activate successfully and get higher engagement. And I always use the Pima Vixens partnership as a really good example. I don't know how aware you were, but in 2020, The Age came out with an article, um, a review, TV review, just prior to the season, and it, and it gave the Super Netball season a two and a half stars out of five, and they hadn't even started yet. Within three days, I think Pima had come out with a response to that. And their response was this kind of fantastic sort of mem, which basically mean, which basically showed netball at its really high performance best. I think the other thing that the age article said had sort of described netball as a sort of once for schoolgirls and, and work outings. Now it's a full on glamour sport, which, of course, you know, is just so fundamentally wrong on, on so many levels. So what Puma did was said, this is not about glamour. This is about performance, strength, resilience, toughness, etc., and um, it took out uh, newspaper articles and in and full page articles. It took out um, billboards in Melbourne. It really kind of went went quite hard in that space to sort of really say, no, 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 uh, this is not what Netflix is about. And the key thing what Pima did then was it really understood two things. It understood the drivers of emotional connection amongst the netball audience, which is this is a high performance sport that is highly skilled and, and delivers really good entertainment. But it also said, we've got your back, netball community. We're going to back you. And the netball audience is an audience that often feels that it's not backed and it's not supported. And so here was a brand that says, we're going to back you and we're going to support you. So it really wasn't surprising off the back of that, that they saw first time usage of their brand really increase. I mean, it was already doing well from the season before because they were producing great content then. But in 2020, it went up even further. And so one in five people aware of that Puma partnership stated that they went out and bought Puma merchandise for the first time. That is significant. And it's significantly higher than the Nick sponsor, which is around at 15%. It's markedly higher than most sponsors will see around first time usage. And so what that brand has done is gone, I know what the drivers of emotional connection are to the, for this follower audience base, and I'm going to tap into them. And I'm going to drive emotional connection to my brand by knowing how um, people connect to the sport itself. And that's when sponsorships can be really impactful and effective. Yeah, definitely honing in on that value of respect, respecting existing fans, respecting the sport as a whole, respecting the league. But also, you know, if that if I was a fan, if, if I was a fan directly um, responding to that kind of Puma approach that they had, um, you would feel so seen and validated and I think that sense of validation and that someone is, you know, really looking out for you and supporting it, the sport that you've been supporting for a really long time, that is such a really, really strong emotional connection and it makes it a lot more meaningful. So, I did, yeah, I didn't know. And you can, from now on, you can kind of um, guarantee that any examples of cool marketing like uh, like that, I won't know because I don't know. <laughs> this is a whole other part of my brain that I don't exercise. So, any facts, you can lay them on me. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, the other one that I think is worth mentioning then, if we're going to talk about a few more in this space, is obviously Combank. I think what women's sport, you know, if you're making a decision as a brand about where you invest your sponsorship dollar, if your play is all about awareness, if it's like, I need to raise awareness of my brand, then obviously going into a male space is a really good idea. I mean, Magellan did that in 2018. They went to support the cricket they said, we're going to go and put the test team. Now, that backfired pretty quickly. And in, in March, um, after events in South Africa, they got out of that pretty quickly because they didn't want their brand to be associated with the negative associations that were associated that kind of followed the team for the next few months and possibly a bit longer than that. But Combank has gone into women's cricket and it went in for quite a long time ago. And at the time for a bank, you know, a bank does, a Combank does not need to be increasing awareness. I mean, everyone, everyone knows Combank. But what Combank does need to be doing is to making sure that sentiment, positive sentiment towards the brand is where they need to focus their attentions. And I'm sure that their decisions to go into that partnership were about a sentiment play. But what's really interesting now, that kind of association with women's cricket over a long period of time, is that they're seeing really strong first-time usage of the brand out of that new audience. So they're seeing younger audiences that's connecting with women's cricket going, yeah, I'm going to use Combank as my bank. And for a brand that 
manages to get in there early. And with this younger audience that women's sport does, it means that you've got this loyalty um, established from a young age with a brand that's been associated with the sport that you've been following for, you know, for all your early years coming up. So it's it's a very sensible play for, for brands like um, Combank and, and NAB in the AFLW. I'm really finding this fascinating. And I'm guessing that the sample size that you've actually utilized to be able to generate this information has really given you a level of confidence in the outcome in these outcomes. I'm really curious to understand how's industry and, and you know potential sponsors for women's sports reacted to hearing these outcomes that, that you've come up with out of the research? Yeah, look, I think I, I think it's interesting that there's so many in Australia, there's big brands in this space. And if you look at brands like Combank, Suncor, NAB, that's telling in itself. They're all big sponsors of, of women's sport, you know, cricket, AFLW, Super Netball. If you look at brands like Cadbury's, Rebel, Chemist Warehouse, they're all in this space and they're staying in this space. I mean, Combank has just now extended its partnership into women's sport and is now partnering with the Matildas as well as, you know, the cricket. So no one's backing out of this. You know, it, it's clear that they know that this is this is a space that's worthwhile being in. And, you know, our data is demonstrating this. Um, so it's interesting to see that the big brands are, are staying in this space and sticking with it. If you look at Australia as a market, you've only got a, a finite number of major sponsors, a Combank, a NAB, et cetera. How do you engage with that next level down mm. of sponsor who probably part of their issue is that they want to penetrate the market and get a high, a high visibility for their brand, yet if you look at it from the point of view of return on investment, they're probably looking in the wrong space because they say, okay, men's sport has all the visibility, but really women's sport is where they're going to get the higher engagement and a faster return on their invested dollar for sponsorship. Yeah, I think that's right. We do see, we see there's still a lot of decisions being made at the chairman level. You know, you'd think that this, that had moved on, but it, it hasn't. There's still people saying, I want to back this, this club because I go there every weekend and I want to have a nice seat at, at the game. So there are still people making decisions about that for those reasons. There's still people making decisions about it because they naturally assume I, I really can't do anything other than I've got to get the audience size. That's the priority for me. Um, and they are not necessarily looking at it at the next level and going, okay, so here's a melon over here. I want the melon, not the orange, because the melon seems to me like it's much bigger and the orange is much smaller in size. But actually, if I focus on this orange, I, one, I don't need to kind of hit as many people in that within that orange because they're naturally more my target audience and they're naturally more engaged with me. And so they're, na- and they're actually more open to listening to me. Because if I go to this melon, I'm going to be talking to talk, you know, send out my message to loads of people of which I can't really target the audience I'm trying to target as much as I'd like to. And it's going to be difficult. Now, if it's just about awareness, it may be good if you know the channels that your target audience goes through and uses. You can still get effectively what you're trying to achieve through going with the melon. But the orange is something that should at least be on the consideration set because within the orange, you can really target the audience. And also more, something that's really worth considering is that in the orange, you may have a whole lot of athletes, one that are seen as great role models because we know that female athletes are significantly more likely to be seen as as great role models. I think the stats is 86% see female athletes as great role models compared to 49% of male athletes. But those female athletes are also much more likely to say, yeah, I'll help you promote your message. Yeah. In fact, they might even be proactive about it and say, hey, I wish I've heard about, you know, from the team. Well, a player's gone, I know this brand sponsors us. I would like to do some cooking thing or aspect and I can help promote their message. That doesn't happen for every team. So in some teams, you really do have an audience that is much more willing, uh, also an athlete base or, 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 or that can actually help you get your message out. It's much more willing to get involved and to make the communication of your message land more effectively. They're going to use channels like social media. They're going to be active. They're going to have your back. They're going to support you. So I think those kind of things need to be considered as well. Again, it's just about, okay, start from size. What else? What are the other factors that we need to consider? And we need to consider things like how easy is it to get our message out there? Is there a good brand fit? Is it easy to activate? 
Is there a strong emotional connection? Is the audience primed for sponsorship messaging? And all those components, and that's why we have our sponsorship framework uh, here at True North. We have a sponsorship framework that really looks at all the different components. Of course, the first one we look at is audience size and the target market within that. But all the other factors around, are you getting good return on investment, et cetera, are all aspects that sponsors should be considering when they're looking at sponsoring and where they put their investment dollar. You touched on something interesting there. It's, does the the type of sponsor or potential sponsor and the industry that they're in have an impact on their recognition and their consideration for use from men's to women's sports? So I'll give you an example. Um, you're going to have somebody who does, let's say, office renovations. They can sponsor a men's team and they will have they'll get a response. They'll sponsor a women's team, they'll get a response. Now, there's an obvious skewing because more men are in the industry in related to office renovations. Would women's sports be an ideal position for them? Or does the industry and the type of organisation play into that skewing? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, there's quite a few things that I could sort of unpack in that because, oh, I don't know where to start. There's a few things. So (laughs) one industry is important in itself. So we know that certain industries are going to different kind of responses to those um, sponsorship outcomes, so consideration usage. So if you're an FMCG product, you're certainly going to be in that first-time usage, uh, more frequent usage space. You know, that's where you're operating. If you're a bank, you're in the sentiment and trust space. Yes. Um, If Some of them are small B2B propositions, so it's really, you know, talking to the membership base and having those kind of things externally that aren't necessarily so consumer-focused. So one industry plays a role in terms of the outcomes that you're trying to get. Um, Second of all, when we look at two different products and the same brand, we see that, let's say, we know this from anecdotal evidence, that uh, there's an audience here over here, it's the same product, same activation, 4,000 over here, 2,500 activated. There's an audience over here, 40,000, 2,500 activated with it. Now, um, right. that is regardless of the gender question that you just asked. But it's just saying that, you know, it's the same product, but it's getting a much better reaction over here than it is over here, despite the larger audience size. But the gender thing's interesting because people assume that those people who are following women's sport and why women's sport get higher emotional connections is because it's women and it's that's not the answer at all in fact if you look at women's sport and the positive reactions that sponsors get they are equal amongst the male and female audience who are following that sport so 50 odd percent of men 53 percent of men are like to engage with that sponsor message and 54 percent of women or actually i think it's the other way around you know it's it's on a par so that's an interesting component when you look at the sponsors of a men's team then you'll see that men are more likely to engage with the sponsor messaging than women. And that's actually where the gap is. So uh, women are not engaging with sponsors of males team in the same way that they're engaging with sponsors of women's team. But men are engaging with both, but are more likely to engage with the sponsor of a women's team than they are with the sponsor of a men's team. That might be slightly surprising. (laughs) And I've looked at the data every single wave and it's the same thing, <laughs> you know, every time. Because we assume that it's it's women driving the women's sports results. It's not. It's just the fact that women are not driving the men's team's results. That's that's a really interesting outcome because it's really saying that almost regardless of the industry that you're in, you're really probably better off getting into the women's sports for a couple of reasons. One, it's a cheaper entry point to be able to get into sports sponsorship initially. Your chances of being able to get a good engagement with the audience is also significantly higher. And then as a long-term play, you're really looking at the fact that as women's sports become more visible and get greater visibility through whether it be free-to-air TV, streaming, etc., you've gotten in at the ground level and therefore you've got the ability to grow with the sport and that's got the potential to help you grow your business. Yet there are industries that and and also there are people who just say women's sports don't bring in the revenue they don't bring in the money they don't bring in the audience and it's not because of the sport i think it's more because they're not given the opportunity 
Mm. I mean, we, we will say, you know, a lot of the time to sponsors who are getting good outcomes from women's sporting partnerships, the challenge for them is always the audience size. You know, they haven't got the same visibility, the same numbers. But if you're a sponsor and you have if you've invested in women's sport, then continuing to promote that through your own channels is is only going to be a win-win for you. So obviously the women's sport itself needs to do a better job where it can do of connecting. And I think I heard your discussions um, a few weeks ago with, with Casey about participation at grassroots level, making those connections between grassroots and at the elite level. And, and certainly yeah. there are ways, and, and I can talk about that too, but there are ways to build those connections up from the grassroots and elite level. And I think that's the onus is on women's sports to do that, is to help get better links so that people are heard to present who then go on to follow the, the national elite game. So there's things that women's rights holders can do themselves. We also need the TV audience and the marketers and the media, et cetera, to do their job. I was talking to someone who wanted to watch the grand final, the Super Network grand finals on the same time as the Wallabies. She went to the pub. There were eight TV screens all dedicated to the Wallabies game. And she asked, put one on for the netball and, and the pub refused. So, you know, it's, it's, there's challenges. What? Yeah, there's challenges at all these levels. So, you know, at a kind of visibility level, there's a challenge. And then, and the sponsors, they want greater um, uh, visibility as well for their sport and they can help as well. So it's a combination of different stakeholders working together to build and continue to build and get greater visibility because, you know, women's sport still needs that. As much as it's really, there's lots of great outcomes once you're there, we still need to be pushing that um, visibility higher because, you know, the men's already start with this huge advantage for a sponsor because you've got that awareness. So even if you only convert a very small percentage, you're still hitting a lot of people and women's sports are having to work a lot harder. They may hit as many people, but they've got to uh, make sure that they connect as many as they do, which they're luckily they are doing at the moment. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned this, and I actually want to segue into this just a little bit about that whole grassroots and elite connection because um Jacinta and I spoke with David Reed, the chairman of the FIBA Women's World Cup that's being uh held in Sydney next year. And we discussed that because it seems to be a key point that we're coming across, you know, and it's not just basketball, it's many women's sports. Obviously you've got this monstrous pool of data. What is your opinion and, and what are your ideas in relation to this space? Mm-hmm. Well, so I really do feel that more can be done to connect, you know, the grassroots participation of with the elites level. So my children have played rugby league, they've played cricket, they've played netball, they've played, I don't know, also, maybe a few other things as well. And uh, when I go to the rugby league matches for my son, you know, there is always a connection to the roosters at that game. There was always... There might be the cheerleaders, but then <laughs> move on from that. Um, the the colours themselves that they're wearing is, is very much you know they've got the, the the V and the red and blue and the white that kind of signifies with the roosters. There's a strong connection to when the roosters game is playing, which you know people will be talking about where you're watching it that weekend. All those things are going on at that rugby league game for my son. Then at my um, at the cricket, well, there's a player. There's a you know there's a New South Wales cricket player that's come down to the nets that's uh, that's practicing with the players because there's a larger pool of the athletes available as well and then if i see my friend's kid has just come from her afl match in sydney and they're wearing a richmond strip or a saint strip because the kids are in those uniforms that are connecting back to the afl so in all those elements there are connection points I'm there at my daughter's netball game and I'm talking to the lovely woman that's been running this organisation for many years and she knows about the Diamonds, but she doesn't know anything about the Swiss or the Giants. She's not, you know, she doesn't even know that they're playing or, you know, can name a player or anything about it. And, you know, I'm not getting, or I wasn't, it's improving, I'm not getting an email that weekend saying the Swiss are playing the Giants this weekend, but I'm getting Sydney FC is telling me, twice a week that there's a game on this weekend and to buy tickets. So, you know, from my football, from rugby league, from cricket, I'm getting communication. And again, it comes back to the resources that you were talking about last weekend, where some organisations have greater resources available than others. Mm. But I'm not getting those communication channels about the women's sport. And so I feel like there's a number of things that you can do is really need to start talking about it, being more visible at the grassroots level about 
the sport, what's happening that weekend. You need to be emailing them, telling people when it's on, where to find it, because that's always a challenge as well. And if there's any way that you can physically show that demonstration of the team colours in some way. Now, obviously, that's much more challenging when you've only got eight teams in the league and there's only two New South Wales teams or whatever it is. But there has to be ways that you can bring that colour and that association to bring it more to life. So I think there are opportunities to extend those linkages, those links at grassroots level to get people to connect and does come to habit as well. We are so used to going to a barbecue on a Friday night or Saturday night to watch the rugby league match or whatever it is. We are not used to going around to a friend's house to watch the netball. And also the netball's on at 1pm or 3pm when we might be playing netball or having Sunday lunch. So that in itself is challenging. So there are definitely challenges, but I think there's also opportunities to improve those those connections. In a situation that you've just mentioned, where you're constantly getting communications from sports, Sydney FC you mentioned, and so on, if you get a situation where the clubs themselves are limited for resources, which in particularly in WNBL, we know that they are, does it then become incumbent upon the league and the league management itself to try and assist to get those communications out to the potential audience and to the fans to tell them, hey, you know, send one email out that says, here's all the games that are taking place this weekend and here's the times that they're on and where they're on. Is that a way to overcome that issue? I mean, I think in the basketball space, what is interesting from the work that we've done in the NBL space is that, well, there's a few things going on in basketball. There's some low-hanging fruit available in the basketball space where people are interested in basketball, they're excited by the things and, and they need to be tapped into. And within that group, there is an audience that is that has got uh, families with, with girls in the NBL space. And it seems to me that there could be much better linkages between the WNBL and the NBL in dual promotions. Now, obviously, we've got that in Sydney. Uh, we've got double headers going on. Um, and I think that is an opportunity there for those organisations to work together to promote, to do a bit of cross promotion across the, um, across the gender code um, yeah. and market a bit better. I think there is obviously going to be challenges at the national scale. I think the more personal you make it, so whilst, yes, it would be good to know what matches are on and where they are, I think you still want to make it quite personal. You want to tap into that tribal nature of, like, I'm wanting to support the Kings because I'm in Sydney and that's uh, all the flames because I'm in Sydney. You know, I think you want to still make it as personal as you can. Now, I know it's a resources issue, but yes, whichever, wherever there is available resources, I think they need to be looking at, at targeting that and I don't think you know from a male merge perspective it's not you know going to go into two details about how to be too technical but you know you can actually personalize that with a little bit of extra time of like slotting in the time of the club even if the oh, national sure. didn't to you know get it down to the, the state level this is um because the grassroots to pros question is something that comes up time to time in our previous podcast episodes Paul and I even when we have our general chit chats off air we come back to why is there such a disconnect between the two? So an example that rings uh, true to me is that my um, junior rep club is the Gosford City Rebels. They were named Rebels because they were rebelling from the existing Central Coast Basketball Club and that's how that club was born. We didn't have a senior team for a really long time. The first time we did have a senior team was... I was a part of in 2004 and we continued the name Rebels and we also formed the senior team under Rebels because there was another existing Central Coast team that we again didn't want to join so we formed our own and then as time went on the senior team got renamed into the Crusaders so yeah I can see you kind of getting you pick it up what I'm putting down so despite our how our club was formed the history the story how how our club was formed the lengths that the founders had to go to to form rebels and then you're going to crusaders even me i've told paul this before even for me when i was a crusaders player in the same season coaching a rebels team my own rebels players didn't know who the crusaders were Mm. and we always we were always scratching our head about the disconnect between grassroots and the senior teams whether you Mm. know a whole bunch of levels even when we talk about uh junior rep players you know, going to a Sydney Flames game, there's that disconnect. So now that you've spoken about the the Puma story about um, and making emotional connection and then even the example of using, as you say, 
extending linkages between grassroots and pros. It makes so much more sense now why our club on the Central Coast has that disconnect versus, say, the Hills Hornets who have this consistent like thoroughbred of club culture and representation wherever you go. Like wherever you go, if I go to a junior tournament, they're all in the same uniform, they have the same uh, merchandise and they're always coming to watch the senior games and then the seniors are exactly the same other than that they may be a bit taller and a bit older. But on the outside, exactly the same. So, yeah, penny dropped for me, so thank you for that. Um <laughs> oh. Uh, yeah, I can see. I can see that it's a, it's a it's a sad situation. That really isn't it, because all that great um, history and emotional connection is just being lost at that next step up, which is a shame. It, it was a hard decision, and it's, a decision still hasn't been made. But we were asked a couple of years ago by you know someone who was associated with the club, who also works in marketing. Do we change our name from Gosford City Rebels to Central Coast Basketball because we're Central Coast Crusaders? Do we change everyone to Rebels? Do we change everyone to Crusaders? And for me, I was I was torn because the club history of why we're called the Rebels is very strong. Um, but also Crusaders on their in their own right have created their own very strong club history and, you know, history with winning a lot of championships too. Mm. Mm. So it's a bit it's it's a bit hard to to pick one or the other. Mm. And, I, and I think, you know, if I, I, mean, I can look at that at a kind of a, at a national scale is that with basketball, one of the things that basketball needs to do is, is to have um, security and longevity around the viability, financial viability of its clubs. Because if you want to maintain loyalty and to have that connection over time, if you're constantly changing the name or something's going, and it's difficult, I mean, I know it, it's difficult, but if you do change those names, then you're losing that connection and that heritage with the club. I mean, obviously, Illawarra Hawks, there was a big uproar about changing the name to the Hawks because you're losing part of the heritage of who the club is. And yes, there's arguments on both ways about why you do it or why you don't do it. But I think that's been a challenge for basketball generally is that that reliability of knowing, okay, the Bullets are here and the Kings are here and Melbourne United's here and the 36ers are here, you know, and the Wildcat or, you know, and then again with the Flames or whatever, you know, it's knowing that reliability is there is an important component to ensure that connection stays there in the, in the longer term. And I think that that's a, an issue for basketball that um, it needs to sort of be conscious of when it does make changes because it's something that is a driver of emotional connection to the sport and in in this instance it's it's a driver because of the change that's happened in the past and because they want reliability not that they're necessarily performing strongly in that area but that it's important to driving connection one question that comes out of that point for me is you've got eight teams so let's just take the flames for example here in sydney you've got the flames yet if you look at new south wales or even sydney there is a, a large number of associations. Is it a potential that the large number of associations, if the team doesn't actually connect with each and every one of them, you'll end up finding that the, those that you don't connect with are just going to not be interested? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pathway for their own success. So the more that they invest in those associations and connect with them, the more likely they are to help their own pathways of player pathways, but also grassroots engagement and connection to their team. So, you know, whatever associate, if you are the elite team, you need to be doing as much as you can to build those connections with all associations to maximise the opportunities that exist for your club, your commercial revenues for that club. Based off of that, because one of the things that I we came across, and I've spoken to Jacinta about this and we mentioned it in a previous podcast, I've come across parents where my daughter was tra- was doing basketball training. They actually didn't know what the WNBL was. They didn't know who the Flames were. And these are parents with daughters who are playing. Mm. So obviously there's that message hasn't gotten down to the associations where they're playing. Mm. Um, that's obviously going to have a significant impact on that emotional connection, on the desire to go and watch them play, which impacts their revenues and therefore visibility and your impact on your potential sponsorship. I know I'm going to put you on the spot here, but what's the easiest way to address this? Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's making those connections. I mean, and I've seen it, some changes happening, but I want the association 
in New South Wales to be emailing if they've got the e- I assume they've got the email addresses but I don't know how different associations work but assuming that the state body has access to those emails then I want those that organization to be telling them the flames are playing this Saturday take your family here's a great offer you know and then maybe the offer is more attractive because it is a participate you know you are participants so there's a better offer take them to watch the match that we can now I know with some it is challenging because the stadium sizes are small so I know that there's a, an issue of like getting too many people on board it's like something like we can't actually fill the stadium because the stadium is only so large uh, I don't <laughs> If that's a problem, that's a problem that they'd love to have. Uh, I'm sure they, I'm sure they would. <laughs> um, but I think you know that's the first step that you can do is make people aware of it, get people talking, and being more visible. So where my children play netball, you know, there's a there's different venues, but there's one venue that has, I mean, I would say hundreds, if not thousands, of people going through that venue every Saturday. It's got an enormous amount of netball courts a rich ground to go to and say, you know, here's a sign, here's a banner, here's a sign that says it's playing this weekend, you know, just some visibility around it. Now that takes time and resources, etc. But there are some small, easy steps that you can take to connect those grassroots to um, the elite level. Now there's other things that other people can do along, along the chain to help that. But I think at a grassroots level, that's something that can be done. Okay. Georgie? I want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been a really interesting conversation. I'm sure there's a ton more stuff we could get into. I'd really like to get you back on another podcast in the future where we can talk about this and other things related to promotion of women's sports and sponsorship and sponsorship connectivity. But this has been great. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Georgie. Um, really filled my head with a lot of different knowledge that I didn't know a lot about but um yeah no really appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom with us for sure well it's a real pleasure to have been able to chat to you about um something that I feel passionate about and and have a chat about it and go over the report again so thank you so much for having me on great thanks so much for your time Georgie and we look forward to speaking to you again soon shooting the breeze can be found on apple podcasts google podcasts Spotify and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.